0: Assalamu alaikum. Welcome back to the Islamic History Podcast. I am your host, Mutaki Ismail, and we will be continuing our series on the fall of the Ottoman Empire. Just a very quick recap of the last episode. Right. We discussed how Inver Pasha, who was a leader of the Young Turks, who were pretty much running the government in the Ottoman Empire, how he used some sketchy means to drag the Ottoman Empire into World War I, which at that time, I think everyone just called it the Great War. Well, maybe they called it the Great War after the war was over. In any case, it was a conflict we know of now as World War I. We also discussed how Back in London, most British politicians they they blamed Winston, Winston Churchill for pushing the Ottomans into the war because, as we mentioned, he had confiscated two two uh, warships that the British uh, government was making for the Ottoman Empire. But of course, later analysis uh, revealed that it was really the Young Turks who wanted to take advantage of. Germany's early wins against Russia. And so, Inver Pasha thought this would, be a, this would be a good opportunity to hop on. And that's when he used his sketchy means to drag the Ottoman Empire into the war. And then we also met Lord Herbert Horatio Kitchener, who was, uh, before the war started, he was the governor-consul of Egypt. And as we mentioned, Egypt was technically or officially part of the ottoman empire but for all intents and purposes the british were occupying it and they pretty much controlled not just egypt egypt but also the land that we now call sudan so they controlled both of those and uh, herbert horatio kitchener was the governor council of that region but he was uh summoned back to london and he became the Secretary of War during this uh, time. The uh, British officials and British people thought that Lord Kitchener, who who had built up a bit of a reputation for all of his military exploits, they thought he would be the perfect person to lead the war because he supposedly knew a whole lot about the eastern parts of the world, which pretty much meant everything that was in Europe and, and America back then. But anyway, Kitchener and his other British officials living in the Middle East, particularly in Egypt. We also discussed how they had um, an exaggerated sense of knowledge of the region and how they were really living in a bubble in Cairo and that they thought they knew more than they actually really did know. So we left off uh, with Kitchener's appointment as the, the Secretary of War back in London. And now let's discuss a little bit about the people he left to run the show in Egypt when he left them behind. We left that country behind. So Kitchener, he really relied on his staff in Egypt to keep him up to date with the, with how things were going on in that region. So now Britain is at war with the Ottoman Empire. Okay, So Kitchener himself, he preferred to be in Cairo or even Khartoum, which is in the Sudan, because he did not really... He felt out of place being in London, and so while his body was in London, his heart was really back in Cairo, and he felt he was more a man of the East, and he didn't like the whole politic things, But so he really wanted to get this war over with and get himself back into Egypt as quickly as possible, and he kind of felt it seems as if he kind of felt like a possessive feeling over Egypt, like Egypt was his and it was his responsibility to maintain Egypt. So he always kept one foot in Egypt. So Kitchener, who believed he knew this region better than anybody else and compared to the other uh, London official or British officials around him, he probably did. But Kitchener, he ignored the foreign office, which I'm going to presume is like the secretary of state or the Department of State in the United States, the portion of the government that deals with foreign governments, essentially. So Kitchener, he ignored the foreign office in London. He didn't trust them to give him accurate information and advice about the Middle East because his own arrogance and his own legend, he probably was drinking a little bit too much of his own Kool-Aid. And he thought that he knew the Middle East better than anybody else in Britain. And so rather than... um listen to any advice from the Foreign Office in London, he relied on his former staff staff in Egypt to keep him informed of how things were going on, how things were, were, were playing out in the Middle East. But the problem with this was that many members of his staff, they held deep prejudices against the Arabs that they lived among. We mentioned how many of them lived in a bubble in Cairo, and they lived within this diplomatic bubble where they only communicated with the with each other with with each other basically each uh, the london the british officials and diplomats living in cairo pretty much lived in their own little cultural bubble and they were very condescending and arrogant and had a sense of superiority over the arabs that they essentially ruled over and there was a problem with that the members of kitchener's staff who were in cairo they had an attitude more like colonialists, where they had that whole, for lack of a better phrase, white man's burden idea about them. And so they had a very, they had a bit of a superiority complex with everyone else. However, the foreign office, even though they did not know that much about the Middle East, they were familiar and they had experience with handling foreign conquered people basically they had they had experience with handling a vast global empire which is what the british had and so even though they may not have had that local knowledge that kitchener thought he had which he really didn't have even though they did not have that knowledge they knew best how to work with a diverse group of people, how to work with people who had been recently conquered or colonized, and they knew how to make those things off easily so that the local populace could support the overall British Empire. Kitchener, however, and his staff, they did not have any of those sentiments. And that was unfortunate because, as it would turn out, it would be the members of Kitchener's staff in Egypt who would play a huge role in shaping the future of the Middle East. Two of the people who Kitchener relied on were a man named Lieutenant General Sir Francis Reginald Wingate and another man named Gilbert Clayton. Reginald Wingate, he was the Governor General of the Sudan. And as we, as we mentioned, the British were occupying both Egypt and the Sudan. Wingate was an intelligence officer and he had been deeply involved in Britain's military intelligence for several years. And so he had been taken off the front lines and out of the shadows as an intelligence officer. And now he was basically a politician as the governor general of Sudan and he felt as if he was removed from all the action and like he was missing out and that the government wasn't taking taking advantage of his skills and talents now that this war was going on with the Ottoman Empire. Gilbert Clayton was Wingate's official representative in Cairo. So Usually, when Gate wanted to know information about what was going on in Cairo, he would ask Clayton. And then when he wanted to make his feelings known to the officials in Cairo, he would also let Clayton know. And then Clayton would pass it on to the appropriate people. But eventually, Clayton was promoted to the head of all British intelligence services in Cairo. Generally speaking, from what I understand, the British government had a policy of getting intelligence information from at least three different sources so that they could put it all together and try to come to as truthful of a conclusion as they possibly could regarding whatever situation they were dealing with but with gilbert clayton now as the head of all intelligence in egypt and in the middle east in particular now all of the all of Britain's intelligence was coming from this one source, and from the sounds of it, I'm pretty sure Clayton had that same uh, white man's burden philosophy that Kitchener and Wingate had, where they thought the uh, the Arabs needed them to save the day. And the fact of the matter is that the British were very ignorant of the Middle East, the British government in general, that is, and so they depended. On the British officials in Cairo, that would have been uh, Kitchener, who had spent so many years in Cairo, and Wingate and Clayton, who were Wingate, who was now the uh, Governor General of Sudan, and Clayton, who was in charge of um, intelligence in the Middle East. And so the the Brits, I shouldn't say the Brits. I'm not sure if that's derogatory or not. But if it is, my bad. The British people, the British government, I should say, they depended on the. Um, on Clayton and on Wingate for their information, they deferred to them, and they generally let their usual precaution and their British diligence. They set that aside and instead relied heavily on these few individuals, and this was natural because these officials had lived in Cairo for so many years, and so they felt they had a better understanding of local feelings and local culture, and. Furthermore, Kitchener, who was now the Secretary of War, he trusted his staff in Egypt and he trusted them more than the people in London, as we mentioned already and the, the um, this would not have been such a a bad idea per se were enough for the fact that Kitchener and his staff they thought they understood the Middle East better than they actually did. However, the truth of the matter is that they were very ignorant of local matters and they were very ignorant of arab culture and they is i think i mentioned it last week it's bad enough when you don't know it's even worse when you don't know that you don't know and kitchener and the rest of these guys they did not know how badly they misunderstood the middle east and much of this ignorance that they had this was fueled by their own uh prejudice and arrogance And it would take uh, later historians to analyze the situation and reveal just how little the British knew and how little they knew, uh, understood the situation that they were dealing with. For instance, the British had very little understanding of Ottoman military capabilities. The Germans knew what the Ottomans could do, but the Brits did not. They thought the Ottomans were stronger than they really were. And so that led to them making a whole lot of mistakes, which we'll get to eventually. But also the uh, British didn't even know how thoroughly the Ottomans had infiltrated the police services in Cairo. And so while the uh, British officials were planning for this war. They didn't know that the Ottomans had spies all around them, and all throughout the um, their own police services. And so, everything the Brits were do were doing were ultimately being filtered uh, back to Constantinople. And since many of these guys, particularly Wingate and Clayton, since these two guys were former members or actually current members of the intelligence service in the, in the um, in the case of clayton since they were members of the intelligence service they had this idea that they could just tell when an arab was lying that an arab could talk to them and they could just judge just by looking in his eyes whether he was lying or not and this this sort of arrogance just made them completely ignorant and completely obtuse about the way things were really going on in the middle east and i be, i believe we mentioned in the first episode Of these, this first burn, the first bonus episode, how the even the British diplomats living in Constantinople had a complete misunderstanding of how things were going, how they actually had fed false information to the British government stating that the young Turks were being controlled by local Jews in Constantinople. And as we mentioned, the young Turks were really a bunch of young Turks, (laughs) they were really a bunch of mostly Muslim. Uh, Turkish people controlling the government, and Enver Pasha, who was kind of running the show, he himself was Muslim. And so Wingate, Clayton, and even Kitchener, they all received this information and they accepted it, and they began to believe that the uh, con- that the Constantinople or that the Ottoman government was essentially being controlled by Jews. And so, with this in mind, with this information in mind, this. They fed this information back to um, the British Parliament, and with that in mind, British politicians began to move closer to considering creating a Zionist state in order to appease the Jews who they thought were controlling the Ottoman government. Very convoluted theory, but that's the way the book says So here are some other things the Brits, and particularly Kitchener, were getting completely wrong about the Middle East, about the Ottoman Empire, and about Muslims in general. For instance, they thought that the Muslim inhabitants of the Ottoman Empire, they thought they blamed Jews for the war. However, the truth is that most of the Muslims in the empire actually supported the war. They also thought that the Muslims were, who eventually became opposed to a Jewish Palestine, or basically what became known as a nation of Israel, they thought the Muslims were opposed to a Jewish Palestine because, because once again, the Jews, they thought, the British thought the Muslims blamed the Jews for dragging them into the war. And so because of that, they thought that was the reason why the the muslims of the ottoman empire did not want um, a jewish palestine but that wasn't the case either uh, local muslims had been opposed to uh, european jews coming into the uh, the region that we now know as palestine and israel they had been opposed to them coming to this area since they began in the late 1800s and it is true actually uh, european jews were immigrating to palestine and israel they've been doing this for decades long before the Balfour Declaration, and long before World War I, they had been coming in. There was already resentment among the local Muslims about these foreigners coming in and setting up shop there. And another thing that the uh, British miscalculated was that they thought the Muslim Arabs, whom they were living among, wanted to destroy the Ottoman Empire. But this was... Once again, false. The uh, British basically thought that the Arabs wanted independence from the Ottomans. That wasn't necessarily the case. Most of the Muslims and the Arabs, they were loyal to the Ottoman Empire because the Ottoman Empire, once again, the leader, the Sultan, was considered the Caliphate. And while he wasn't the best Caliph in, in history, he wasn't even the second or third best Caliph in history. While this the Ottoman Sultan had a whole bunch of issues, the fact is that most of the Muslims and most of the Arabs living in the Ottoman Empire were loyal to the Caliphate. They may not have liked the Young Turks, and that's what the issue really was. Many of them did not like the Young Turk government. They perhaps wanted to replace the Young Turks or maybe bring in a totally different government completely other than the Young Turks. But they didn't necessarily want to abolish the Ottoman Empire nor abolish abolish the Ottoman Caliphate. They were quite all right with that and so the british the brits once again had a very very uneducated and ignorant view of the muslims that they expected to help them in this war and one final thing regarding british misunderstanding of muslim sentiment because the brits thought that the uh, muslims and arabs of the middle east hated the ottoman empire they thought The Arabs, both Muslim and Christian Arabs, wanted the British to come in and destroy the Ottoman Empire and grant them freedom, which is completely false. Most Muslims and Arabs did not want the Brits to come in and save the day. And what uh, the British failed to recognize is that it wasn't that the Muslims and there, I'm sure there were some Muslims and Arabs who did not like the Ottoman Empire, but it seems to have been a minority. But what the British didn't understand or what they didn't care to reflect on is as we see even to today, Muslims in that region generally did not like being ruled by non Muslims. That's where the problem came in. They could deal with an Ottoman government that was at least Muslim. They can deal with the Turkish with Turkish rulers who were at least Muslim. But when it came to non-Muslims ruling over a Muslim populace like that, that's where the problems start. And we see that even to today, whether it's the Crusades or the, the, um, the Second Iraq War or even Afghanistan, most Muslim populations do not like being ruled over by non-Muslim invaders or occupiers or colonizers it usually turns out to be a lot of conflict and much of the conflict between Muslims and non-Muslims has been a direct or indirect result of non-Muslim invaders coming into Muslim lands and taking over their nations. And the, the British just didn't realize that. Well, moving on as bad as the British were, the British were mostly just about, um, they had that, um, Superhero syndrome. They, they they just had to save the Arabs from themselves and from the Ottomans. The French, however, were even worse. Whereas the British kind of took on that whole white man's burden philosophy. The the French just, they felt Syria belonged to them. We're talking about Syria now. The British felt they had to save the Middle East from itself and from the Ottoman Empire. The French felt Syria belonged to them. And this is goes back to the Crusades. Where the, where the most of the Crusaders, which are, I'm planning on, um, a long series on that coming up, inshallah, many of the Crusaders came from France. And if you go and read the ancient documents, the uh, Muslims who fought against the Crusaders, they called them Franks, even though they came, most of the Crusaders came, many of the Crusaders came from all over. They came from Germany and from England and from many other places. But the first wave were from France. And many, uh, pretty much all of the early conquests were for uh, the nation of France or the kingdom of France back then. So as soon as it became known that the Ottomans were in the war, the French wanted to make sure that they could get a hold of Syria. That's what they wanted, the area that we now know of as Syria. And now in the beginning of the war. However, the French really couldn't do too much. They really couldn't get into the Middle East and and try to grab Syria as quickly as they wanted because in the beginning of the war, they are too uh, focused on trying to fend off the Germans. And the Germans had already broken through Belgium. Now they're pushing into northern France. And it was all the French could do to hold them off. But eventually, towards the end of 1914, the war began to settle into a stalemate of this trench warfare, which the world war one is pretty much known for. And once it became known that these two sides were just going to just go at it. And in this trench warfare that lasted for so long as both sides try to blow up each other's trenches, the French were now able to, to focus or refocus on Syria and see what they could do over there. Now, the main thing for the French was to make sure the British didn't get Syria before they did. And it should also be known that while many people in the French government, and in fact, I believe most people in the French government wanted to make sure, wanted to basically take Syria away from the Ottomans, there were a few who didn't really want to dismantle the Ottoman Empire. And that's because the uh, French private sect- private sector, had made a whole bunch of loans to the Ottoman government. If the Ottoman government fell apart, they won't be able to get their money. The French act actually controlled over 60%, well, almost 60% of the Ottoman public debt, of uh, the Ottoman debt, basically. So 60% of the Ottoman Empire's debt was to France or if not France, then to French companies and French businessmen. And so they were very concerned about losing their investments if the Ottoman Empire fell apart. But ultimately, the uh, French colonialists who wanted to add Syria to the French Empire, they won the day and they began to make plans to invade Syria if it became known that the British were about to do the same and so for a while the british and french governments they they were allies by the way they were were on the same side they began talking and they came to an understanding that they wouldn't touch syria without informing the other but that was in london and paris however in the middle east the British and, the, and the, lo- the local British and French officials in the Middle East, they continue to plot against each other and they move forward with their own plans, regardless of what their respective capitals were saying. And so now continue, continuing on with this theme of European ignorance of the Middle East, Kitchener now he decides he wants to capture Islam. He had, he, he had his own plans for the Middle East, and his plans for the Middle East were very different from either the British Prime Minister or even those of Winston Churchill. And Winston Churchill, remember, he was not the Prime Minister in World War One; He was instead the, uh, the basic Secretary of the Navy. He was in charge of the British Navy. So neither Churchill nor the Prime Minister of Britain, neither of them wanted to really take a whole bunch of lands away from the Ottoman Empire. remember they depended on the Ottoman Empire in a way as a buffer against the against the Russians. so there's a disconnect between what uh Kitchener wanted and what Churchill and the Prime Minister wanted, which uh Churchill and the Prime Minister wanted they wanted they definitely wanted to weaken and shrink the Ottoman government even more, but they were hoping that they could get some of their allies to take over some of these lands away from the uh, Ottoman government rather than then the uh, British people or the British government or the British empire absorb the entire middle east into its own already global empire but kitchener was having none of that he fully intended to control the middle east either directly or indirectly. And this goes back to his mistaken belief that he understood Islam and he under and that he understood Muslims, when actually he did not really understood either. For one thing, he took Islam to be a single organization like the Catholic Church that was run by the caliph. And that is not necessarily true as we all as we Muslims know, <laughs> Islam is far from a single organization. We're not very organized at all. But Kitchener thought that the caliph and in, in this case who was the Ottoman sultan that he that he ran the uh, Muslim world similar to how the pope runs the catholic world and his and in his mind in Kitchener's mind he believed that Britain controlled the caliph then they could control islam as well as control muslims so um, Kitchener was afraid and concerned that the caliph, the sultan or ruler of the Ottoman Empire, that he could essentially summon the entire world of Islam and all the Muslims all across the world to just turn their sights on the British Empire and take it apart. And of all things, of course, the one thing the the um, the British Empire was always concerned about was India, and. Kitchener was also concerned that, in addition to India, we'll get to that in a moment, but he was also concerned that the British garrisons in Egypt and Sudan were vastly outnumbered. There was a few hundred, maybe a few thousand British soldiers ruling over millions of Muslims in Egypt and Sudan, and he knew that if the um, if they ever thought about it, if they ever really wanted to, they could overthrow the British Empire at any moment, or they, they could overthrow their British rulers or overlords in Egypt and Sudan, at any moment, they just never went about doing so. We're now going back to India. At this time, um, much of the much of Britain's military in Asia was made up of Indian Muslims, and there was already a little bit of um, concern within much of India. I'm sorry, within much of the British government, and particularly for Kitchener, because they remembered how. Roughly 60 years ago, there was a mutiny in the British army of Indian Muslims against the British government back in 1857. And the British uh, government was still very concerned that something like this could happen again. And Kitchener was especially concerned of what would happen if the Caliph ordered Indian Muslims in the British military to turn their guns against the British themselves. And so not 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 only was Kitchener concerned about what might happen during the war if the um, the Muslims within the British military turned against the British government he was also concern, concerned about what might happen after the war presumably I'm going to I'm going to guess right now that the allies presumed that they would win this war because everyone's talking like they're going to and <laughs> they're talking like they're going to they're going to win this war and that they have this thing under control so and they're planning they're talking and and making plans as if the war has already been won. So Kitchener was concerned that if since they were allies with Russia, once they defeated the Ottoman Empire, they were Kitchener was concerned that Russia would take over some of the former lands of the Ottoman Empire, especially Turkey and Constantinople, or which included Constantinople, putting them putting them that much closer to Britain's crown jewel, India, and he was concerned about that. However, Kitchener was not up on the latest information, such as Churchill and the Prime Minister. They knew that Russia really wasn't much of a military threat anymore, and as we have seen, Russia had been beaten by the by the Japanese not too long before this, and that in the early parts of the war, they had also uh, suffered some ter- terrible losses against the Germans. But Kitchener ignored all that, and he was concerned that if the Allies won the war, then Russia might take control of these regions close to India. So Kitchener was in a very difficult situation. He had to defeat the Germans and defeat the Ottomans, but not let the Russians, who were his allies, gain too much territory in the Middle East. So he came up with this big idea, this grand idea. And his idea was to promote an Arab caliph, an Arab caliph who would replace the Ottoman caliph after the war was over. And of course, in Kitchener's mind, this Arab caliph would be someone that the British could control. We're going to look into some of his uh, choices for this new Arab caliph in the next episode, inshallah. Till then, assalamu alaikum. You've been listening to the Islamic History Podcast, and we hope you've enjoyed the show. Subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Podbean, Google, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Visit islamichistorypodcast.com slash Middle East to find other episodes in this series. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a 5 star rating and review and share it with your friends and family. You can also support the Islamic History Podcast and get access to exclusive content by becoming a patron at patreon.com/islamic History. We have exclusive episodes covering the life of Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, the life of Ibn Zubair, the Crusades, and so much more. Special thanks to Brother Zulfikar Saroj for his research and support of the show, and thanks to all our Patreon subscribers. Until next time, my name is Mutaki Ismail for the Islamic History Podcast. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu.